Welcome to the Addiction in My Family podcast, dedicated to educate parents and other family members about addiction, codependency, enabling, and recovery with your host, Donna Marston, author of Peeling the Onion and Just for Today. Hi, everyone. My guest today is Kimberly Desiree, who is a person in long-term recovery and also a daughter of parents who had a substance use disorder. Kimberly's journey of growing up in and living in unhealthy environments has brought her to a place in her life where she has healed her past so that she could move forward living her life in the solution of recovery and paying it forward. Kimberly is an intuitive coach and mentor and is going to share with you her experience, faith, and strength. Welcome, Kimberly. Hi, Donna. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So um, can you tell us a little bit about what your drug of choice was? Alcohol. Alcohol. And how did, um, how old were you when uh, your addiction took over? And uh, how did drugs and alcohol affect your life? I started drinking at 13 years old um, is the earliest memory I had of really starting to drink heavily. Um, I think I may have drank before then at, com- at Christmas parties at my grandmother's when no one was looking, but <laughs> I was 13 when I started drinking. Um, and I really started drinking heavily probably in my 20s, and it just completely ruined my ability to make um, good decisions um, as far as being a grown-up and living in the world as an adult. Mm-hmm. And so you had mentioned to me before that you grew up in a household where your father um, was into drugs and your mother, I believe, was alcohol. Yes. So, um, and you you had mentioned a story that really um, touched me that when you're a little girl at, I forget how old you were, your birthday party and your dad came in and can you tell that story and how that carried into your adult life? please? Oh, yes. Um, I remember that story vividly. Um, It was one of those things in my life that actually, until I did work around going back and looking at that situation, I didn't realize how much it affected me. But um, to go back to the story, um, I think it was like my sixth birthday, my sixth birthday, and it was my mom and my sister. We were very poor, and my mom scraped up enough money to get me a cake and put a little um, figurine on it, a little um, doll. And, um, you know, she gave me her last $20. And I was really excited because we didn't have any money. So um, my dad, who was in and out of my life, you know, he would randomly show up, just kind of showed up um, on my birthday with a friend. And it was apparent that they were high on something and drinking. They smell like alcohol. And, um, you know, he wanted my money. He wanted the birthday money and, um, I wouldn't give it to him. And I remember going in my room and hiding it and under my doll's, um, crib and his friend had come in my room and had told me, you know, we'll leave if you give me the money. If not, your father is going to come in here and, you know, he's going to hit you and spank you for not giving it to him. So just give it to me now and I'll prevent your father from coming in here. And, um, will leave. And I remember being really, really angry at that point. And um, that was a moment in time when I lost my voice and my ability to speak up for myself. So I, you know, grudgingly gave him the money and 
you know, there was a little bit of a scene and my mother was petrified and we were all a wreck and they finally left. And I just remember suppressing all of that and being extremely angry. And I was angry at my mother for not doing something about stopping it and making him leave. And my money was gone. And that event actually traumatized me to the point where throughout life, um, I was very selfish. I wasn't able to give to people and I couldn't understand where it came from. And I'm talking right down to the fact if I was out to dinner with somebody and they mentioned, oh, your dinner looks good. I wasn't even open enough to share and say, oh, want to try a bite? Mm. I would actually get resentful if somebody said, can I try some? Mm. And that goes back to the fact that I couldn't speak up to myself and have boundaries and say no. Um, so I always, uh, through my grown-up years, felt like somebody was taking something from me when in fact, you know, the situation in front of me did not match what actually took place, that defenseless kid that couldn't speak up. And I also witnessed my mother being a victim and powerless. And so throughout life, I attracted men that were bullies and narcissists, and I could never speak up for myself and have healthy boundaries. So that toxic thing carried with me and um, throughout my craziness and, you know, the the ride of, you know, drinking and trying to numb myself from the pain of childhood experiences like that. So um, it's quite traumatic for me. And, but I never really realized it until I did work to go back and understand that part of myself and where that came from. So it was liberating to understand and see it for what it was so that I could finally free myself and open my heart to give and be able to say to somebody, Hey, want to try a bite off my plate and not get resentful for mm -hmm. them. Taking it. <laughs> right. So, um, you said that you started drinking at 13. Mm -hmm. When did, at what age did your life become unmanageable where you started to realize that you had a problem with drugs or alcohol? Um, it was probably in my twenties that I really realized it, um, that it was a problem because in the teen years, it was more of I was in so much pain and life was so confusing. So it was, it was something to numb me. And of course, being young, I thought, oh, this is fun, you know, hanging around bad people and, and doing drugs and alcohol. But I would have to say it was in my 20s when I finally had to start being an adult and I was on my own. And um, I went through hairdressing school and had a job and I had a relationship and moved in with somebody. And the drinking became a problem with, you know, the relationship. I was fighting a lot and arguing and um, whenever there was a problem, all I would do was drink. And then it became a cycle for me. I would um, drink a lot, fight with a person, and then I would make up, you know, and I'd try to be good and I'd convince myself I was fine. And, oh, you know, it's not the alcohol. It was just a fight. So I would be okay for a while and I'd, then the drinking would start continuing and then it would escalate. And then the drinking would always get worse when I was, you know, having a bad relationship. So this became a pattern and it was one relationship after another. And it was, it was almost as if it was the same person over and over again, just a different face, different mm -hmm. um, scenario, but the alcohol became a problem. Um, but somehow I always managed to work. So I was one of those functioning alcoholics. I could still maintain a job. Um, so that was another reason why I didn't really believe I had a problem because, well, I work, I make good money. I have a nice apartment, a beautiful car. Um, so um, the alcohol really just affected me in relationships in the 20s. And that's when um, I ended up in rehab in my late 20s, um, the first time trying to get sober. Mm -hmm. 
So it's interesting. Um, I always felt when, when my son was in active addiction, he would do things to um, encourage an argument. And so that in my, you know, looking back at it, that it feels like he did that. He'd push my buttons, get me going. So then I could be his excuse why he needed to go get high. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about, you know, you, you had arguments and then you'd make up, because sometimes people are addicted to the makeup too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you feel that um, some of those arguments that were created, were they so that you could uh, protect your right to, to, to drink? Um, I feel looking back, I mean, I think back then the drinking was the thing that made me feel better and I could validate it was an excuse for me to drink. Um, but looking back, I believe I was actually pushing these people's buttons and provoking the arguments because really I was trying to see if they really loved me and they needed to prove they loved me. So when I would push the buttons with the belief system that they would love me and it would be fine, but it didn't turn out that way and would argue and fight, then I believed I wasn't loved. So that led to me drinking to numb the pain of not feeling loved. Interesting. So you'd have your pity party. I had my so pity to speak. Party. Yes, yeah. I did. And I could wallow in it for days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. So um, you had mentioned before that you had some relationships and, and you kind of always went to the same type of person. Was, was the men that you picked, were they very similar to your dad? Did they have a drug or alcohol problem or they were just narcissistic? Um all of the above? No. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's funny that you asked that because they, they came in sequence. And what I mean by sequence is every time my father came back in my life, he was in and out of it. There was a different aspect of him that showed up. So throughout the years as a kid, every time a different part of him showed up, I would internalize that. So when I grew when I was little, he was in prison a lot. And, um, you know, I'd see that part of him when we'd go to the state prison to visit him. Then he would show up and he had a lot of money. He would show up with money and he would buy us a lot of things. And that was the the drug dealer father that showed up. So it was like Santa Claus showing up. Then there were times when he would show up and he would be at his lowest, almost like a skid row kind of thing. And he would Um, you know, I remember one time at my grandmother's house, he showed up and he was all bloody and full of alcohol and he, you know, was telling his mother to hide him and the police came looking for him and we hit him. And then after I watched my grandmother, you know, baby him and Oh, Jackie, my Jackie. And so there was a lot of different aspects, as I said earlier, that I saw of him. So the men that showed up in my life actually showed up in sequence as to the the traumas that I saw with my father. So I had all these different types of men and I thought they were very different. But when I look back, they were all the parts of him that traumatized me. So there was a variety of um, files of my father that I dated in life matching that, um, you know, energy of him trying to have some kind of a resolution or something. But they were all alcoholics for sure no matter what they were alcoholics so they did drugs yeah wow interesting um so can you talk a little bit about your journey of your recovery at what age did did your your life become unmanageable i know you had mentioned it was it was later in life and um and and then where you 
once you finally did go into rehab and learn to live in the solution of recovery, how did you move forward and how has your life evolved? Um, well, the, like I said, the first time I went into recovery, I went into a rehab center for 32 days. I was 26 years old. Um, I had met my first husband. We weren't married yet. And, um, you know, he knew I had a problem with the alcohol and he was going to break up with me. And I kind of knew at that point, you know, this is out of control. So I went into the rehab. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't go in there for the right reasons. Um, I did manage to say stay sober for three years. Um, but I did it because I wanted everything in my life to work out and I wanted the relationship to work out and I finally wanted to be married and have the happily ever after. So I did get sober. I did get married, had a big wedding. I had everything I dreamed of. And then that relationship actually um, fell apart and he, you know, made bad business decisions and he um, went bankrupt and we divorced. So I stayed sober and then I met my second husband um, and I was 32, I think I was 32 years old then. And that's really when um, I went on a hell ride for 10 years of drinking. It was a really toxic relationship, the worst, you know, um, relationship I had ever had and experienced because there was so many bad things that I'm actually ashamed of now when I look back. But um, I finally had the strength to leave that relationship and um, I got sober um, seven years ago. And that was, you know, getting sober again, it had to do with another relationship ending. But this time, the difference was, Donna, when I decided to get sober, I literally was on my knees. You know, I shouldn't have woke up. I drank so much. And I checked myself into a detox hospital. And I had decided at that point, I had three children and I had had enough and I wanted to live. Um, and I knew I could never drink again. So I left detox. And I came back to what was left of my life. My business was falling apart and, you know, there was a lot going on, but I was able to clean it up. And by the grace of God, I stayed sober. Um, you know, and it, it was, I think at that point I had found my faith. That was the thing. Um, I knew I didn't get sober by myself. It was something higher and greater than, than me that got me sober. Um, and it was that thing that stood by me throughout it. Although at the time I didn't realize it. Mm -hmm. But my life did start to get better when I mm -hmm. got sober at that point. And, um, you know, it was, life was good, you know. But again, I found another relationship. And this time I was like, oh, I'm sober. Thank you, God. Everything's working <laughs> out. It's great. And that fell apart. And I think that was when I had my awakening. And that's when I knew, okay, it's me. There's something going on with me because I'm sober now. And my life is still having that same pattern from way back when, although it wasn't as messy and ugly, it was very, very, very painful because I actually had to feel it this time. Right. I didn't have the alcohol to numb me. Mm -hmm. And it was, I had to feel all of it, every bit of what happened to me. And I had to go, okay, it's you. And that's when I started doing my journey of going inward and trying to heal um, the wounds of the past. And I believe it was that three and a half year journey of soul level healing that really did it for me. Mm -hmm. And I know that I, you know, I'm here, I'm whole as a person and you know, there's nothing outside of me that's ever, I ever need to make me feel whole again because I am now. And it was, it was really doing that, you know, soul level healing that helped me heal from the past and know why things happened and 
you know, the forgiveness and all the work I did around it. So mm -hmm. that's what brought me to this point in my life now. Wow. Isn't it amazing? I know when my son was in active addiction two years before he found his sobriety, I had hit my enough where I couldn't breathe. I, I wasn't living my life. And I went on, um, well, I, I, I went to, I tried to go to support groups, but I think my ego was in the way because back then it was my son just, he's going through a phase. He's not like your child. And I made excuses. But I ended up, when I couldn't breathe, I couldn't tell you a feeling I had. I ended up going the, a, on a spiritual journey rather than like Al-Anon and those types of things. Mm -hmm. And it was, it's pretty amazing. You know, I ended up becoming a Reiki master and, and that was kind of the start. So is, is that how your journey started more through your spirituality or through AA meetings? Um. The most recent healing um, definitely was through the spiritual journey. Um, when I did get sober the, the first couple of times in the rehab in the 20s, and even when I got sober seven years ago, you know, I did go to AA and things like that. Um, but I knew deep in my soul it wasn't for me. And I know it helps a lot of people. And, you know, whatever it takes to get sober is fantastic. But for me, that wasn't the thing that did it for me. It was my spiritual piece. It was my connection to something outside of myself, knowing that um, there's a much bigger picture here and, and realizing that I was a soul in a body having a human experience mm -hmm. and that I was in control of everything that was going on outside of me, within me. When I finally could wrap my head around um, that I'm more powerful than I knew because being, you know, in the alcoholic realm there and the dysfunction of the family, I felt powerless my whole life. So when I found my soul, the spirit piece, I knew that, that I was the most powerful being and that I did have choices in that I could change my life and doing the soul level healing stuff was really the thing that shifted me. I mean, it shifted my soul mm -hmm. to the point where there was no going back to the person I used to be. There was no more being a victim. I had a better understanding of life why I was here, who I was, what my purpose was, what I could give, because it was always what I could get because I was a victim and I was desperate. And now it's my heart is just opened to the point where it's like, I just have so much to give and help. That was the change for me. It was that spiritual piece because mental, physical, spiritual, and emotionally is what we are. And if all of those components aren't in balance and there's not a sense of harmony, there's always going to be something outside of you or triggering you to go and fix and get the balance. So the spiritual piece for me was the biggest one that I really had to work on, but that did it for me. That changed my life finding me and my, you know, essence of who I was, my soul. Mm -hmm. So what tools did you use that took you on that journey? Um, actually it was my, well, it was my determination when I decided, you know, when that breakup happened that I never wanted to be that person again. It was definitely my determination, my strength. And it was like when I commanded it, it was, that's what happened is when I commanded it to the universe, I don't want to be her anymore. The universe responded and it was like, okay, you finally asked, you have free will and you meant it. You meant it. Here you go. And it was as if by magic or angels or something just started bringing the right people to me, 
I started reading inspirational quotes that were speaking to me on Facebook when I was in my darkest times. And I would see things like, when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change by Dr. Wayne Dyer. Mm -hmm. And it was like the world started speaking to me in a way that it hadn't before. And I believe the universe, spirit, God, whatever you want to call it, started leading me and putting the breadcrumb trail and go here, follow this. And then I would, somebody would mention, you should read this book. It's a great book. Or, you know, you should, you should go on this website and check out this video. And I just started paying attention and it just started, the world started speaking to me in ways I had never seen. And then my intuition started growing and I started feeling like I could you know, have a discernment about myself that I didn't before. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and one of the, the biggest things I think for me that did it was um, I read a book by Michael Meerdad and it was called Healing the Heart and Soul. And that book changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. Okay. Tell us a little bit about that book. Um, absolutely. Well, it's a kind of a funny story. Okay. <laughs> um, the man that dumped me for the last time, the one when I was, you know, brokenhearted, um, I started having the spiritual awakening and he kept coming back and forth. And, you know, I would not give up the spirituality. I would go back with him and, you know, fool myself. And then he's like, you know, you're changing. Something different's happening to you. And I started explaining all this stuff and he, he seemed interested. So me being still newly awakening, I quite wasn't, um, you know, really with it yet. I thought, well, if I find something for him to read, that's easy. He'll understand this thing and we'll be together forever, which is kind of funny. <laughs> so I was out at a bookstore and I was looking for something to read and I noticed the name Michael and it was in the spirituality section. I pulled the book off and it was How to Heal the Heart and Soul by Michael Meerdad. I had given it to this man um, and his name happened to be Michael. So I'm like, Oh, it's a sign. He's going to get, he's going to wake up. Um, he, needless to say, he never read the book. And the last time I was at his house, intuitively, I knew I was never going back because I had had it. And mm -hmm. I grabbed the book. I said, that's my book. So I, I brought the book home and I started reading it and I went, Oh my God, this book was for me all along, not him. I was ready. I was open and it spoke to me and it talked to me about, you know, first of all, the, the awareness of what was going on. And then there was the acceptance of having to look at it. And then there was the phase of emptying and the clearing and the healing. And then there was refilling with the new, because I created space in my life for new because I let go of all the past and all the hurt. And, you know, the fifth phase of the book was being in gratitude. So that book literally was the catalyst that really started getting me to understand the process of spirituality and healing on a soul level. And um, the best part about that, Donna, is that I actually got to meet the man that wrote the book. Oh, wow. That's cool. He's in Sedona. Awesome. He's in Sedona and he was in New England. And I went to go see him and I actually booked a private session with him. Wow. And, you know, he did a healing session on me where I actually could feel him literally pulling out years of pain out of my body. Literally, it was it was the most it was one of those things where I said, you know, I never had a miracle before. It was a miracle. Like I really could understand what he was doing. And I wrote, I wrote an article about him that was published. And every time he's in New England, I see him and no matter what I've read, and I've read tons of books, and I could tell you so many stories, that man was the beginning for me, and that is what started the whole thing. And, um, 
you know, I will be forever grateful for what he gave to me. Oh, that's amazing. Isn't it interesting, you know, that the books, the self, some of the self-help books that just, when you're ready to receive, mm-hmm. it, it's when it changes. And I can tell you when I was living through the nightmare of my son's addiction, I had a friend say to me one night, you know, it's not cool to be a martyr. And I thought, uh-huh. how dare she? But then I ended up finding this book called The Voice of Knowledge by Don Miguel Rayuz, I think is how you say his name. And I learned that all these years I was playing the victim. I was making my son's addiction about me. I was taking it personally. And it had nothing to do with me. Uh-huh. You know, and, and just when you come to those realizations, it's just pretty amazing. You know, I, um, I think another good book is, um, is The Four Agreements. Yep. And You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. The, that, was, that, really, that was a book that made a difference in my son's recovery. Till yep. this day, he's been sober almost 10 years. He's, that's one of the most influential books he's ever read. Wow. Yeah. That, the Four amazing. Agreements is fantastic. I, I had read that book um, and The Fifth Agreement, too, the one after that. And you know, another book that was fantastic is The Untethered Soul. I love that book. Yes. Yeah, I tell everybody to read that book because that that people that are still living in their story and the ego mind is still, you know, that monkey mind is running their life. Yeah. Like, Just read that book, then come back and talk to me and then we can really have a conversation. And they're like, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yep. And Awakening to the New Earth with um, Eckhart Tolle. I did, when my son was in his last rehab, I, Oprah had him do it, it was it was a workshop and it was with people from all over the country it was live and I had joined in on that and and, and I learned about my pain body and and how to heal that and, and work through all of this stuff so yeah those are great books yeah untethered soul is 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 really a good book and my son I it's one of the books I gave to him in his early recovery and he loves that book yeah that's Michael Singer yep Everybody yep. listening, yeah, I, that's yep. a fantastic book. It is. Yeah. So um, you are now um, an intuitive mm-hmm. and, and you work, I, I saw that you write for a, um, um, is it an online magazine? Yep, it's Spiritual Biz, B-I-Z uh, magazine, Spiritual Biz magazine, yep. Yeah, and you want to talk a little, little bit about that, how your journey of, of recovery led you to be um, on an international <laughs> site that you're, you're doing intuitive work for people and helping people heal and paying it forward. Yeah, it's, it's funny, yeah. Um, well, when I had my awakening and I started, you know, obviously getting into the spiritual piece, what happened, I've always been intuitive and I kind of dismissed it as just, oh, that's coincidence. But as I started healing and letting go of the layers and layers of all the false belief systems and um, traumas and, you know, the energy that was blocked within me, my gifts started opening up, really opening up. And I started really becoming very, very aware and awake and intuitive um, in my clairvoyance where I could see things happening before they happen was just getting off the charts. So I decided to start studying about it because I knew it was going to be a piece of the future for me somehow. So um, I started, you know, doing all that stuff. And then I had an idea that, oh, I'm going to open a metaphysical store because I want to be a healer. 
So I didn't know anything about running that type of business. And um, I had found, her name's Kimberly Masca out of California, and she was on Facebook. And she was creating a group for spiritual entrepreneurs who wanted to learn about how to do an online spiritual business. So I joined the group and I started contributing to what was going on and she was putting out there. And I started sharing, I became um, a little bit of a writer. I started writing my own inspirational quotes based on my healing. And I was getting a great response. People were loving them and sharing them. And um, she had reached out to me and asked me if I would like to do some uh, beta testing for her. Mm. And I had no idea what that meant, but I'm like, sure, I'm open. So I started working with her and she was really giving me the lowdown on how to do an online business and everything. And she mentioned to me that she was going to be starting an online um, spiritual business magazine. And, you know, any of the people in the group, if they had any ideas, we would be able to be contributors there. And I said to her, I said, I have always given good advice. And part of my good advice is I was a hairdresser for 33 years and a salon owner. So I had people in my chair all the time, plus my life experience, plus all the studying and, you know, all of it. I said, I want to be the spiritual Dear Abby of the world. I said, I want to do Dear Desiree. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I started an intuitive advice column and I've published 43 episodes on the magazine, which if anybody goes, they can go right to my page there and see what I've done. And now I've actually started filming it in a vlog. So um, next month they're going to be coming out in a video format. I'm doing it professionally at the TV station. So people will be able to send their questions to me at my website and then I can answer it in a video and send them the video. Plus the video will be published online at the magazine. So it's been really cool. I, I love it. It's fun. Awesome. Good for you. So before we close, do you have um, any information or um, any, anything that you can say to parents in particular? That's who I work with. I am a recovery support coach um, and I do private coaching sessions with parents. Do you have any information or advice or um, words of wisdom that you can share with them? I do. Um, well, first of all, my heart goes out to them because I, I know I, I know their pain. It's horrible to have to deal with that. Um, but I, w- I would say to them to, first of all, don't feel guilty and to remember if they can step outside of what's happening in their life and look at it from an objective standpoint and see that this thing is not happening to them, it's just happening. Right. And understand that this person in their life that has the addiction it's their journey mm-hmm. and that they can't fix them. The thing that they can do to remain healthy and sane for themselves is have really healthy boundaries mm-hmm. and to let the person that has the addiction know how much they love them and they're there to support them in their healthiness. Right. But if they are going to continue to do things that are against healthiness, that they still love them and that they'll always be there, but they need to maintain their own healthiness because it can really I mean, just suck you right in and, and create a crazy world for yourself being in it. So just to know that as long as they are there to support them in healthy terms, but they need to maintain their own healthiness so that they can continue to live because they still have their life. They can't stop living for the people who are going through this. They can only be there as a support and um, you know, not taken on as theirs in trying to fix somebody who needs to go on the journey themselves when they're ready. 
Right. And, you know, I, I learned the hard way. I, I, you can't fix somebody who doesn't want to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And, and um, as a parent, I think it's really tough because, you know, I think in, for women in particular, you know, we're taught to be codependent. The first thing we're given as little girls is a baby doll. Here, go take care of your baby doll. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that's a, that's, and you learn that codependency. I'm going to be a good mom and I'm going to take care of my baby doll and then it carries over and then you have children and for me I took my job as a parent very seriously and wanted to do the best job I could possibly do and so it was it was just it was really a tough thing and um, as I said earlier I took my son's addiction personally I made it about me and um, and it wasn't it had nothing to do with me and when I learned to uh, start living my life, take back my power, and I step back. I, I detached with love. And eventually, he started seeking me out. When I stopped being like a tick on him, he started coming <laughs> for me and, you know, wanting to hang out, wanting to have a conversation. He would, I'd have books that I was reading, self-help books. He'd pick them up, ask if he could borrow them. And uh, lo and behold, he moved forward in his recovery. It was two years after I detached with love, let go and let God. Mm-hmm. And uh, so miracles do happen mm-hmm. um, out of this horrific brain disease. So I want to thank you, Kimberly, oh, for being you. my guest. You're a, a great guest. And I hope people seek you out because you have great advice and you're doing wonderful things for people. Mm-hmm. And so... As I sign off, I just want to remind uh, parents that I'm a recovery support coach. I offer private coaching sessions, and I do have an online membership page. So for more information, you can go to www.donnaforsupport, that's with the number four, .com. And um, I'm going to end with saying, until next time, may your faith and strength heal your heart. Thank you for listening today. If you want to support the Addiction in My Family podcast, please subscribe, share, and leave a review on iTunes. If you are in need of support, Donna offers private coaching sessions and an online membership page for parents who are emotionally bankrupt. For more information, visit www.donnaforsupport.com.